Well, good morning. As always, it is a privilege and honor to begin our day as brothers and sisters gather together in the presence of, of our God. Well, let us begin by turning in the scriptures to the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> our text today is found in the last of what has been called the four servant songs found in Isaiah's prophecy. And it is in this servant song that we see in a very particular way that the servant of God is a suffering servant who suffers vicariously, that is, he suffers on behalf or in the place of the people of God. Let's begin our reading in chapter 53, uh, verse number 1. Although technically this passage begins in chapter 52, verse 13, uh, we'll begin our reading in verse 1 of 53 and read down through verse number 12. This is God's word. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is, that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. With us, the reading of God's word and his people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask God for his blessings. Our Father, as we have just read this remarkable chapter, we understand that we are treading on holy ground. Lord, may we, like the Ethiopian eunuch so many years ago, Understand that this text that we have just read is the good news of the person and the work of Christ. And may we, like that blessed man so many years ago, believe 
this good news to the saving and the sanctifying of our souls. Lord, thank you for your word that reveals to us your Christ, the Savior of sinners, who in his great love for you and his great love for your people submitted himself to the humiliation of being crushed for our iniquities. Lord, as your son prayed before he was crucified, would you glorify him today by causing us to cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and blessing. And it is in his great name that we pray. Amen. Well, dear ones, as I started at the beginning, it is a great privilege and an honor to be able as brothers and sisters to gather together in the very presence of God. And we aren't just gathered together in the presence of God in a general way, but rather we are gathered together in its presence in a very special way. I do hope you realize, if you are a believer, how blessed you are this morning that you can come and dwell in the special presence of God as his children and as his friends. Now, if we're going to appreciate this, we must realize that every single person on this planet at this very moment is in the presence of God. However, many of which are actively storing up wrath for themselves in his presence. There's a great multitude of people at this very moment who are enemies of God. And by virtue of the doctrine of the omnipresence of God, they are sinning in the presence of God who is their judge. And this God judges without partiality. His judgment is just, and it is perfect, and it is severe. And when I say severe, I do not mean that it is more severe than it ought to be, but rather it is severe in exact accordance with the severity of breaking covenant with the Creator God, which is exactly what the wicked have done and are doing. Further, this morning, if we would appreciate our blessed privilege of joyfully dwelling in the presence of God, we need to be reminded that there is a multitude of people who are in hell at this very moment, and they are in the presence of God. God is not absent there. Quite the contrary, God is pouring out his omnipotent wrath on wretched sinners who died in a state of enmity with God. Do you not know that forever and ever, the smoke of their torment, that is the torment of the wicked, rises in the presence of the Lamb. And so, as we consider our blessed state, our blessed privilege of being able to dwell in the presence of God, not as his enemy, but as his friend, may we have the same heart of the hymn writer Isaac Watts, when as he considered the sweetness of dwelling in the presence of Christ and of receiving from his hand the blessings that come through union with him, he exclaimed out of sheer amazement, Lord, why was I a guest? Brothers and sisters, are you amazed at that this morning? We should not be allowed to partake in the sweet presence of Christ and of all the blessings that he so graciously gives. Because every single one of us knows that we are sinners. We have broken the law covenant. We have broken the covenant of works. And therefore, we deserve the full weight of the wrath of God to be poured onto our heads. Do not underestimate the blessing of being given the right to be called children of God. Because that comes to us, dear ones, by pure grace 
and grace alone. So this morning, my desire is for us to look together at what had to happen in order for us to be granted access into the favorable presence of God, into the sweet presence of Christ. And yes, Isaiah 53 is critically important in answering that question, but before we see that connection, we need to back up a little. As you are aware, we have been in a sermon series for the past couple of weeks where we have been considering together the doctrine of union with Christ. And we've been looking at how understanding this doctrine is essential if we are going to understand the whole structure and message of the scriptures. And further, a grasp of this doctrine is vital for us if we are going to understand how to abide in Christ, how to feed upon him, how to partake in him, and to receive from him everything that we need for our salvation and our sanctification. And so we began this series by going back to the beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, and looking at how God, in his sovereign good pleasure, chose that the foundational principle by which he would relate to mankind would be through the way of covenant. And so we saw in Genesis 2 that God made a covenant with Adam, and in this covenant, known in theology as the covenant of works, God gives a law to Adam that Adam must obey. And further, God makes a promise to Adam that if he keeps the covenant, that, if, that is, if he obeys the law, that he would receive a reward, and that reward was nothing less than eternal life. But God also threatens a punishment or a curse if Adam should break the covenant, if he should disobey the law. And the threatened curse was nothing less than death. And, and we've hinted at this the past two weeks, but I want to make it more explicit now. And that is that this promised reward of life in its essence is this, that the keeper of the covenant would receive the blessing of being able to dwell in the favorable presence of Yahweh, of God, for all eternity. And to receive from him from all eternity his covenant love. That is the reward that is graciously offered. Conversely, the threatened curse of death in its essence is this, that the covenant breaker would be cut off from the favorable presence of God for all eternity, cast into outer darkness. And thus, instead of receiving covenant love from the hand of God, the covenant breaker would receive the curse of God's wrath applied to him forever and ever and ever. That is the curse for breaking the covenant. And so, here at the beginning of the Bible, we have laid out for us two great ends for Adam. One ending in eternal life and one ending in eternal death on the basis of the covenant of works. Then we read, of course, in Genesis chapter 3 of the tragic fall of Adam. Adam breaks the covenant of works. And as we should expect, the just God pronounces a curse upon Adam. But then we see something that further builds our understanding of the way that God relates to mankind. Not only is Adam cursed, but all of his posterity is cursed as well, as a result of Adam's breaking of the covenant. And thus, what we see at the very beginning of Scripture is that the foundational principle is laid down that God interacts with mankind by way of a covenant 
but not just by way of covenant, but by way of a covenant mediated through the context of a federal head. And thus, as the New Testament divinely interprets Adam's role as a federal head over all men who proceed from him by ordinary generation, we come to the scriptural conclusion that you and I, in our natural state, that is, the state in which we were born, are born in Adam, in union with Adam. And thus we are born as those who have broken covenant with God. And therefore we are born under the curse of the covenant of works. We are born in a miserable state. We are born with the guilt of Adam imputed or applied to us. Further, we are born with Adam's sinful nature conveyed to us. And therefore we are born as enemies of God, as children of wrath. We are a people in our natural state who are under the condemnation of a holy God. And we have no way of fixing this issue. The covenant of works is broken. There are no do-overs in the covenant of works. It requires perfect, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, all of which is impossible for us to attain. We do not have the native ability to do this. We are fallen, we are undone, and we are in need of grace. The writers of our confession do a wonderful job of, sim- of summarizing our condition on account of the broken covenant of works in chapter 6, paragraph 3 of the confession. There, write, there, there they write the following. They, that is Adam and Eve, being the root and by God's appointment standing in the room and stead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin, Adam's sin, was imputed and, cor- and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Being conceived in sin, that is us, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, the curse, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. That is our condition. That is our destiny as a result of the broken covenant of works. But then the confessional writers proclaim the gospel in the very next phrase. This is our condition. This is our destiny, this curse, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. The structure of that paragraph is almost identical to the structure of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Turn there, if you will, and let's read read that together. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Almost identical to what our confession says. And then notice verses number four and five. But God, unless the Lord Jesus, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
And so what we have introduced to us here in this wonderful paragraph in our confession is that if mankind is going to be able to escape the curse of the broken covenant of works and to receive the reward of eternal life, God would have to intervene and make a new covenant. And with the making of this new covenant, he would have to establish a new federal head. And that new federal head is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of God prophesied in Isaiah. Now, in this covenant of grace, this second covenant, this new covenant that God makes, what does this new federal head have to do on our behalf if we would receive the promised reward of life? Well, last week what we focused on was this, that this new federal head, this last Adam, would have to succeed where Adam, the first Adam, failed. Jesus Christ would have to obey the law of God perfectly if we would have any hope of receiving the promised reward of life. And praise God, Jesus Christ, in fact, succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus Christ, the scriptures declare, knew no sin. He never sinned, not for one millisecond. He overcame temptation, as we saw last week in the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He kept the law of God perfectly in heart, soul, and mind. He is the only one who has ever been able to say with a spotless conscience that he has always loved the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that he has loved his neighbor as himself. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one who has ascended the hill of the Lord. And he has received the approbation of the Father who declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so what we saw last week was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the new Adam, has lived the life that we should have lived. And thus he has earned on our behalf the very righteousness that we need in order to be accepted by God. Theologians call this the active obedience of Christ. And so what we saw last week was that on the basis of the foundational principle by which God relates to mankind, which is by way of a covenant mediated by a federal head, the only way in which mankind could receive the promised reward of the covenant, which is eternal life, is by virtue of the federal head of the covenant perfectly obeying the demands of the covenant on behalf of those whom he represents. Now, I realize that was one of those long Puritan-like sentences, so I'll repeat it for us so we get, we get the point. On the basis of the foundational principle by which God relates to mankind, which is by way of a covenant mediated by a federal head, the only way in which mankind could receive the promised reward of the covenant, which is eternal life, is by virtue of the federal head of the covenant perfectly obeying the demands of the covenant on our behalf in order for us to be saved. Jesus Christ has done that very thing. If you trust in Christ, you will receive from his very hand the perfect righteousness that you need in order to be accepted by God. And thus, Christ in his covenant-keeping obedience resolves one of our great problems, which is our lack of positive righteousness that would commend us to God. It is in union with Christ by faith 
that that problem is resolved. Amen. But as we stated last week, our lack of positive righteousness is not our only problem. You see, we weren't merely blank slates who were in need of a positive righteousness. No, we were children of wrath. We are enemies of God. We are sinners by nature and by practice. We are a cursed people under the condemnation of a holy God. We are sinners. We are breakers of the covenant of works. And because God is holy, because He is just, because He is righteous, His justice must be satisfied. He must punish sin. He can't just wink at it. He can't just turn a blind eye to it. He can't just sweep it under a rug. He has to deal with it. He has to deal with our sin, and he has to deal with it justly. Now, I want to quickly look at a couple of verses in Exodus to drive home that point. If you would, turn to Exodus 34, and let's notice together verses 6 and 7. The word of the Lord here says, The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. Well, I don't know about you, but on the surface level, that is a very difficult passage to understand. It says that God is a forgiving God. All of our hope is bound up in that truth that God is a forgiving God because we have broken the covenant. Therefore, if God is not a forgiving God, we have no hope. So all of our hope is bound up in that truth. That God forgives sin. And yet it says that God will by no means forgive the guilty or clear the guilty. And so what this passage teaches us is this. Yes, God is a forgiving God, but he will not violate his justice in order to forgive. That is the great dilemma of the scriptures. And it is in this dilemma whereby we see the absolute necessity of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. Brothers and sisters, the necessity that the Christ would have to suffer and die in our place in order for us to be set free from the curse of the broken covenant of works is absolutely essential to the whole message of Scripture. In fact, if you deny that reality, you destroy the gospel. And dear ones, this doctrine in particular is always under attack. And it is particularly under attack today in the world of missions. Right now in our day, there are missions agencies that are training their missionaries to not preach the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Because they say that is too offensive and it's too much of a stumbling block. Well, I read in the Apostle Paul that the preaching of Christ crucified penal substitution, is an offense and a stumbling block. Dear ones, if we deny this doctrine, we deny the gospel. 
Paul said it in this way in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's the very first thing he said? That Christ died, penal, punishment for sin. What's the, what's the punishment of breaking the covenant? Death. He died, penal. He died, what? For our sins, in our place, substitution. So, penal, substitutionary atonement. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That is of first importance. Now, I don't have time to, to walk through the whole Old Testament this morning and to show you that this theme, that the offspring of the woman, the, the Christ, would have to suffer in order to redeem his people from their sins, but, but it really permeates the whole Old Testament. Genesis 3.15 says, He shall crush the head of the serpent but his heel would be bruised. In other words, in his federal headship of the covenant of grace, he will accomplish the destruction of Satan and the liberating of his people from the kingdom of darkness, but in the process of doing so, he must suffer. And as you walk through the rest of the Old Testament, we see this theme time and time again. We see it in the garden where God shed the blood of animals in order to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. We see it in the ram caught in the thicket who is sacrificed in the place of Isaac, substitution. We see it in the Passover lamb. And we definitely see it in the whole sacrificial system of Israel, where God makes atonement for the people time and time again through the slaughter of animals in their place. But in all of this, the reality that the Son of God must suffer and die in order for the people of God to be redeemed is only revealed to us in a very shadowy way. It is in the light of the New Testament that we can see these types and these shadows for what they really are. But in and of themselves, they are shadowy and mysterious. The concept that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins that is made clear, I think, even in the Old Testament shadows and types. But it wasn't so clear that the blood that ultimately had to be shed in order to take away the sins of God's people would be the blood of the Messiah, of the new Adam, of the very Son of God. And it is precisely here that I think Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant plays a critical role in the unfolding revelation of the covenant of grace. Remember what we have established in our sermon series so far. And that is that the foundational principle by which God relates to mankind is by way of a covenant mediated by a federal head. And what we've seen is that the first covenant, the covenant of works, has been broken by the servant of the Lord in the context of that covenant, which was, of course, the federal head, Adam. And this necessitated that in order for mankind to receive the reward of life, there would have to be a second covenant with a new federal head. In other words, a second covenant with a new servant of the Lord. Secondly, in order for mankind to receive the reward of life, both of his problems make him, that make him unfit or reprobate in the eyes of our holy God must be dealt with. What are, what are our two great problems? We mentioned it last week. On the one hand, we lack the positive righteousness that is required 
to enter into God's presence. But we also have a sin problem. And that's what Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53 makes clear. It makes clear that, that the substitutionary atoning work of vicarious suffering is necessary for the redemption of sinners. It's not, and, and it makes clear further this, it's not the spilling of the blood of bulls and goats, but rather it is the sacrifice, the shedding of the lifeblood of the servant of the Lord in the place of the people of God that is necessary. Hebrews picks up on that. The, the, sin, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, but only the shedding of the blood of the servant of the Lord, the federal head of this covenant of grace, only that blood can make atonement for sins. Now, of course, what the New Testament makes explicitly clear for us is that this servant of the Lord, prophesied in Isaiah 53, is the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. There are some who want to try to interpret Isaiah 53 as something other than Jesus Christ being prophesied. But the New Testament, which is God's word, and as I've stated already, God is his best interpreter. God interprets Isaiah 53 as that this suffering servant is his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, that is the interpretation of Isaiah 53, that this suffering servant is Christ. There is no other suitable interpretation. And so what I want you to see is this. In order for you to be saved, your sin problem has to be dealt with. You are filthy and unclean in your sin and thus unfit for the kingdom of God. And the only way for your sin problem, to be, sin problem to be dealt with is in union with Christ. Benjamin Keach, a 17th century Baptist, writes, Though a person may be ever so filthy and unclean before his union with Christ, yet this union does not leave him filthy and polluted. Dear ones, the servant of the Lord, the servant of the covenant, the new Adam, the man for us, died the death that we should have died. He died in your place for your sins on that cross where it pleased the Lord to crush him for our iniquities. If you are united to the Christ in his death through the instrument of faith, then your sins are forgiven. They're paid for. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. So how important is the doctrine of union with Christ? The doctrine of union with Christ, who is the federal head of the covenant of grace, the servant of the Lord, the one who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, that is the heartbeat of the gospel. If you don't understand the doctrine of union, union with Christ, you don't understand the gospel. We have to be united with Christ in his perfect life lived on our behalf, and we have to be united with Christ in his sacrificial, substitutionary death on our behalf. That is the only way that we can receive the promised reward of eternal life. And so my plea to you today is this. Come to Christ. Be united to him by faith. And you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that you need in order to dwell in the presence of God and to receive from his hand for all time covenant love. 
Now, what I want to do in closing is to turn our attention to Revelation chapter 5. If you would, turn to Revelation 5. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 13. And so I'm going to read this as our closing prayer. And as we read these verses, may even now, may we with the spirits of just men made perfect, cry out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. May we worship Christ today as he so richly deserves. Let's read together verses 6 through 13. And this will be our closing prayer. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud, ver- with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Well, at this time, the floor is open for any comments about